This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, we have a bunch of virus headlines. We have Morgan Stanley planning to bar employees who are not vaccinated against COVID for entering its offices in the uh, New York area. Really, Wall Street firms trying to figure it out. Uh, we also saw that about a million people in Sydney will be barred from leaving the city as Australia races to control an outbreak of the De- Delta variant. Tim, we just continue to muddle through this. We certainly do. Fortunately, we have Dr. Mario Ramirez, emergency physician, also managing director at Opportunity Labs, also pandemic and emerging threats coordinator at at the HHS during the Obama administration. He joins us now on the phone from Washington, D.C. Dr. Ramirez, it's great to have you with us. I want to start with the Delta variant, because as we learned from the CDC today, it's spreading rapidly here in the U.S., now accounting for a fifth of recent coronavirus cases. When you see data like that, what do you think? So you're right. This is a really concerning trend. Uh, And I think this is this has a lot of folks, um, you know, quite a bit more concerned than we've been in recent weeks uh, because this particular variant, as you mentioned, is highly infectious. And as a result, you know, the doubling time uh, has been pretty short. And so we're seeing, you know, quite a significant increase in cases caused by the Delta variant. Now, the reason that that's important is a couple of things. So, you know, if we look over to the UK, um, we can see that in, in a country that has pretty broad vaccination rates, their case counts have started to go up as a result of the Delta variant quite significantly. Um, The reflection on that here in the United States, though, um, you know, is a little bit different because we use primarily the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. But what we have in this country are large geographic swaths where the vaccination rates are quite low. And, you know, what you essentially have then is a vaccine variant or a a virus variant that's highly infectious that's going to be circulating in communities that are not well protected. What does that mean? Well, that means that there is a significant chance for cases to go up uh, in parts of the country that are not well vaccinated. And I'm looking primarily at the southeastern United States and parts of the Great Plains region. Um, You know, there are a lot of estimates across the board. I think most people are settling on the potential for a 20 to 30 percent increase in cases in some of those areas as we start to get back into the fall. Because I think what we're all wondering is what is the fall as it gets colder again and as we're facing more of the Delta variant, what what does it mean? And I do wonder about those of us who have been vaccinated, should we be thinking and putting a date on our calendar about getting a booster. So the data so far, uh, you know, shows that the the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines both work extremely well against the Delta variant. And I want to put, you know, listeners' minds at ease. If you are vaccinated, uh, you are overwhelmingly protected against this variant. Um, The numbers that we're seeing out of the UK still show an 88 to 93 percent efficacy against this particular variant. Um, but the question about how long the immunity lasts is still an open question, and that's a question that's being studied, you know, very aggressively uh, by the NIH and by others. And, you know, the signals that I think most of us are starting to look for are, you know, when do people who were previously vaccinated towards the end of last calendar year start to experience some breakthrough infections? And if we start to see an increase in breakthrough infections, we will sequence those variants and look to see if it's being caused by the Delta variant or is it being caused by something else? And when we start to see that signal, that's what tells us that it's time to start vaccinating people again. Unfortunately, I'm, we don't have that answer yet. I'm wondering, doctor, if 
this is indeed fast spreading here in the United States. And if it's indeed infecting people who have not yet been vaccinated, does that get us to a point where we end up reaching herd immunity because the people who haven't been vaccinated become infected with it? So the, the question of herd immunity, you know, at this point is something of a, a sliding scale. And I think you've heard a lot of people walk back uh, the term herd immunity as a goal that we're trying to get to, because I think, you know, now we're realizing that the virus is mutating, you know, fairly rapidly, uh, or at least on the order uh, of something that, uh, you know, people who have chosen not to get vaccinated uh, are not going to be well enough protected by, you know, 50 or 60 percent of the population vaccinated, particularly in these areas where, you know, vaccination rates are as low as 30 or 40 percent. And as the virus continues to mutate, um, it gets very difficult for us to continue on, you know, what most people think is a linear trajectory, that if we keep getting closer to 70 percent, that eventually we'll cross this threshold where the entire population is protected. But it doesn't really work that way, unfortunately. As the virus continues to mutate, uh, you know, and as people's immunity fades, it's right. really sort of a, a moving Target, if you will. Dr. Ramirez, you were Pandemic and Emerging Threats Coordinator at Health and Human Services during the Obama administration. I feel grateful that we still get tested every week here, even though we've been vaccinated. So there is a check <laughs> balances and, you know, we're just keeping a check on everybody who works here. Testing seems to be that it still is an important part of this process. How do you see it and what do we need to do at a federal level? So I, I think you're absolutely right, Carol. And testing, uh, and the point that I want people to hear, um, you know, is that although it feels like we are past the pandemic here in the country, um, we're in something of a dangerous phase because while the mindset is there, that's not necessarily true, you know, with what we're seeing from the virus. And the truth is that none of us are 100% certain how this virus is going to behave and what the next few months heading into the fall and the winter hold for us. And so, you know, with that in mind, I, I think it would be much more responsible for us to continue to use testing to guide our response. And that's, you know, to get back to the question of, you know, how do we reopen the economy? How do we reopen the country safely with all of these questions about variants circulating? And I think testing has to be a key part of that. You know, and this is where an organization like the We Act Alliance, where I speak for a bit, um, you know, comes in and they are trying to really sort of play that role and create guidelines for employers right. um, to use testing to help bring people back safely. Um, right. And as we enter this sort of in-between phase, Got it. where we're not entirely sure how long the immunity lasts, um, we- testing is a key part of that. Dr. Ramirez, always so thoughtful and smart. Thank you so much, Dr. Ramirez of Opportunity Labs. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. We blame millennials for so much, but there's a great read on the Bloomberg Terminal. In fact, Tim, it's among the most read about millennial wealth. It's a thing. It's real. It's misunderstood. It's just another thing that's misunderstood about millennials. Uh, We have a lot of things that are misunderstood about us, Carol. I'm speaking as a millennial. You're (laughs) complicated. Allison Schrager is senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, also an opinion columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us now on the phone from New York City. Allison, your column challenges a lot of the conventional wisdom about my generation. And I'm wondering, what is the one piece of data that says to you, hey, we need to rethink the narrative here because millennials, they're not actually doing that badly. Hi. Well, you know, I don't think there's one piece of data. You really have to look at the overall financial picture of millennials. 
And take into account that we, you know, we often hold millennials up to the boomers where they were at their age or even where Gen X was at their age. But really, they're in a very different world, and they're making financial choices that reflect that world, and those are actually smart choices that make more sense for today. Well, let's so go. Th- I think what. Yeah, oh, no, we'll go through them because, first of all, we always do a thing of like looking at debt, and we know millennials have a lot more student debt. Yeah, that's true. They have a lot more student debt. Obviously, a lot more of them went on to higher education uh, than previous generations, and uh, that education was a lot more expensive. But really, that was a smart choice for a lot of them because, you know, in this world, more and more, you need a college degree to get a good job, to get a stable income. So really, you're making an investment in yourself. And in a lot of ways, if you look at the statistics on it, you know, education has, uh, you know, tends to pay off more than owning a house. So making that choice isn't really necessarily a bad one. What about when it comes to owning a home and the idea that many millennials, people even approaching the age of 40, don't own homes at the rates that their parents' generation did? Well, they don't. But, I mean, again, that's for a lot of different reasons. Some of it is um, student debt, although there is a strange correlation. The more student debt you have, the more likely you are to own a home. Hmm. And that's mainly because, you know, people with tons of student debt tend to do MBAs, law, uh, um, you know, law degrees, medical school. So they actually have more money to buy a debt. But, it, but you know, a lot of other people aren't owning homes, partially maybe because they took on student debt and, you know, aren't quite as successful. But, I mean, again, that might be a good choice. Um, what, we're, what we were founding certainly before the pandemic is that living in a metro urban area put your career in a more fast track because we have, I think what Richard Florida calls these creative clusters. So your career will boom more if you live in a high cost area, but that also means you're less likely to own a home. So in economics, we have this concept called human capital, which is sort of the total, uh, what your lifetime labor income is worth. And that's considered as an important an asset of what's in your bank account Mm. or how much debt you have. Mm. So if you're making steps like living in a big metro area or taking on education that increases your human capital wealth, that's actually just as important. I think it's such a different way of thinking. And this is why the devil's in detail when it comes to data. You also write, which I really found fascinating, uh, Allison, reliable wages, which is different from maybe what the boomers saw. Yeah, so this is the other really big surprising thing in economics. For years, even my dissertation had this result that wages were getting more and more risky. And you hear this all the time. Millennials are facing so much economic uncertainty compared to their parents. They don't have these stable union jobs that their parents had. But actually, when economists got their hands on Social Security records about uh, eight or ten years ago, there was this shocking finding that's really shaken up the profession that actually wages move around a lot less than they used to. Wages used to vary all over the place. And now they've actually been falling over time, partially because we're more likely to work at big firms. Um, Also, people change jobs less frequently. They're less likely to be self-employed. So actually, wages have become more predictable. And a really sort of central result of financial economics is assets that are more predictable or more valuable. And that's why, you know, a treasury bond costs more than a junk bond. Mm -hmm. So really, if you think about your wages, if they're more predictable, in a sense, they're worth more. So a dollar that a millennial earns is in some ways worth more than a dollar than what their parents earned because it's more predictable. 
What about when it comes to the next generation, Gen Z? And I think about this in the context of what we're going through right now with the pandemic, the great debate about where you need to live in order to have that great job, that high paying job. And I'm wondering if these sort of clusters of areas in the country that are expensive as a result of uh, providing jobs that uh, pay more and uh, are in high demand, if that picture changes as a result of remote work. It could. I mean, I'm less optimistic that Gen Z can get away with remote work just because, as you know, I mean, and anyone who's like deep into their career, often, you know, your career advances when a senior person takes uh, a kind interest in you and sort of helps promote your career. And that's going to be harder if you're not interacting with senior people. Mm. And also, um, you know, as I said, being around peers and actually forming in-person connections with them is super important early in your career. On the other hand, I'm very optimistic that Gen Z is going to be a great generation because, you know, one, I mean, I said, I'm, I'm a very sort of very, very late uh, Gen X or borderline millennial. And my generation, like yours, were, entered the labor force constantly being told we were spoiled. We couldn't handle feedback. We couldn't handle any sort of setback. But Gen Z is just... We'll accept you, Allison. Very early. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I guess it's like, it, was it an Oregon Trail generation? I think. Yeah, what we're trying yeah, to that makes out. sense. <laughs> All right. Well, but listen. There's also you also cover yeah. about financial assets. We're out of time, but I highly recommend that folks go to uh, Bloomberg.com or if you're on the Bloomberg terminal, check out Allison's column because <laughs> I love it. You get into the data and really explain it all away. Allison Traeger, she's senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a Bloomberg Opinion. Columnist. And I'm going to go ahead and say an honorary millennial. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. First of all, this is a great cover story, and yes, image. It's the cover story in the United States. It's about shorts, shorting the market, the history of the role of shorts in the market, and how Reddit hates those short sellers. But you know what, Tim? We need them. The stock market needs them. We do need them. Joel Weber is editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He's here with us live in the Bloomberg Interactive at Brokers Studio. Also, Pat Regnier, markets and finance editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us on the phone from New York. Uh, Joel, I just want to start with the cover for the uh, the, <laughs> the U.S. edition. Um, I, Tim was reading on the subway. I, Be I was, honest. Okay. Like, people so here's were what checking I said. you out. I was reading it on the subway. I was scrolling through this this morning. <laughs> uh, and I got to the cover and I was thinking to myself, well, I, I, I kind of want to just tell everyone around me, okay, I'm reading something for work here, okay? This is, this is totally <laughs> safe for work because I work here. Yep. Well, I think it's one of the most iconic that we've done, at least this year. Um, and if you haven't seen it yet, um, imagine a, uh, a naked <laughs> body uh, uh, with a conveniently located... Uh, plaque that says we need shorts that um, is covering up, uh, you know, where you would expect it to be covering up, right? <laughs> and the moment that um, our art department showed that one, um, I was like, well, that should probably go on the cover. Um, and so we we made sure that we did that. But it, I think the, the point is a really important one. And look, like we've done a lot of markets and finance covers of late in this year, and we always will. Uh, but I thought that this was a really good moment for this one because of the dialogue that's really been happening, um, especially from the Reddit crowd of, um, that, you know, shorts ha- have had a really hard go of it. Um, they've been almost it feels like they've been, you know, driven into the, the sea, if you will. Um, I'm thinking of like the last unicorn or something like that. <laughs> and yet it it's all somewhat of a disservice. And I'll bring Pat in there because. Pat, like shorts do serve a very important purpose, uh, despite what Reddit haters might say, right? Well, sure. I mean, the world needs skeptics. And while anyone who's buying a stock or maybe owns a stock might have a reason to look skeptically at a company's numbers, 
bringing shorts into the equation means that you have people, uh, you know, who have a reason to look even without actually owning the share. And they, in fact, can make money uh, by, by taking a hard look, um, even without ever having been involved in the bet. So people who look at this say, like, look, shorts, they bring, you know, liquidity to the market, they bring new information to the market, and, and they also can kind of surface things that, uh, you know, people who are bulls on the stock uh, might not want to talk about another who don't have a stake in the company might not have a reason to go um, sniffing around to look at. That's not to say that it's not like a lot of Wall Street, but sometimes murky business. Uh, but uh, that's, that's that's how it works on Wall Street. Right. And let's not forget, first of all, it's the other side of the equation, right? There are people who mm-hmm. talk about stocks that they like, and we're all kind of comfortable with that. This is people who talk about stocks that they have concerns about. It's the other side of the trade. And Pat, shorts and short investors, they can often be right. They, they certainly can. I mean, the, the classic example of that that often comes up is, uh, you know, Enron. It was mm-hmm. a short who was, uh, you know, uh, speaking to journalists, uh, you know, about, like, you know, maybe, you know something something doesn't look right here. Um, you know, we've had lots, lots more examples. Sometimes the specific things that they bring up aren't right, but they create enough smoke that people start kind of looking for fire um, and that and and that can be an important role um, they are interested actors you know I think uh, you know journalists have kind of a soft spot for shorts and we have to be careful because that can be mm-hmm. a little bit of a trap right, right. shorts spin great stories mm-hmm. they have a reason to what journalists have to remember is like you know we just like great stories shorts like great stories that make them money and you got to remember that part why is this person telling you this story? Pat, you also, and uh, Brandon, who wrote the story, you edited it, uh, get into the concept of naked shorting, which is getting a lot of attention right now. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's it's really misunderstood. What did the data tell us about something that uh, is actually not allowed that people think is happening? Right. So, so the idea of naked shorting is that you're going short, but you're not doing the crucial thing that you're supposed to do when you're shorting a stock, which is you actually have to borrow the stock before you sell it to somebody. So you're basically, you know, um, doing the trade and telling somebody that, um, you know, you are, that you have this stock uh, that you're selling to them, but maybe you haven't actually borrowed it, which uh, would be an abusive practice. It is illegal and you can get in a lot of trouble for doing it. Um, You know, some people have pointed to the fact that um, there have been a lot of what are known as sales to deliver on some uh, heavily shorted companies and they say like that. That looks suspicious to them. Um, you know, the SEC has kind of a standard disclaimer when they release that data saying, like, you know, this could be a number of different things, not necessarily um, evidence of naked shorting. You know, I think it's something that uh, always needs to be looked at. Markets are big and complicated and, you know, and increasingly opaque in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, it, you know, it's it's not there's no open and shut case that uh, naked shorting is is happening at all or happening at the kind of scale that's really moving, uh, you know, that's really moving a stock. You know, the other um, thing that I think the the timing of the story was was great for was the fact that Hindenburg has sort of been in, in the headlines of late. Um, Lordstown, obviously, being one example of that, DraftKings um, being another. And and I'm wondering how, um, at Pat, you know, as somebody who's who's covered all of this before and and the ecosystem. What what stands out to you about the Hindenburg um, uh, examples? 
Well, you know, I mean, I think what's, what's so interesting there is, like, there you have a case where that, that is a company that's doing research, and they're telling you that they're short, right? So they're giving you the information to know, like, I am an interested party there. And, you know, in the Wardstown case, they're raising a lot, you know, they were raising a lot of concerns about some of the pre-orders that Wardstown has. Now, Wardstown has, you know, said, like, we went and we looked, and they, they actually said, yeah, there was some problems with some of the statements uh, we made there. They've denied some of the other allegations, um, uh, you know, that were, that, that were made. But, again, it was sort of like, hey, we're going to shine a light on this, and, you know, and we're going to look at it. Uh, and then you just have to kind of, you know, judge is this person who's, just always remember, who's doing a trade and needs, and, you know, and, and, and has an interest in, in sending the price down. Uh, they're going to be pointing at issues. Uh, but, you know, are they are they going to hit everything just right? Probably not. And they're an interested party. It's a primer we all kind of needed. Yeah, I, you know, I yeah. just think it, it, it's truly um, part of the, the marketplace that makes, it's intended to make the marketplace stronger, right? Mm-hmm. And it, without it, you don't have this, you know, fail-safe sort of switch that is there for a reason. And right. it, things go up and they can go down too. And if we don't have people playing both sides of that, then everything gets a little too wobbly. Well, we saw that during the tech bubble, right? People just talked up stuff. And then we found out that there was a lot of fluff. It's... That would never be happening now, right? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> That's a different cover. All right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well done. Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber and, of course, our markets and finance editor Pat Regnier. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So SolarWinds, Microsoft, Exchange, Email, Colonial Pipeline, JBS, the cyber attacks, they do feel like they're worsening and the frequency is picking up. And Tim, I recently spoke with Michael Chertoff, chairman and co-founder of the Chertoff Group, former secretary of Homeland Security. I did so from Bloomberg's Qatar Economic Forum. And we talked about a lot, including how companies and governments can protect themselves from cyber attacks. Here's a portion of that conversation. If you go back a number of years, we mainly worried about the issue of theft of money, uh, impersonation of identity, theft of intellectual property, espionage. That still continues. But now we are seeing more and more disruptive and destructive attacks, including those that have an effect on critical infrastructure and are really touching people in their everyday lives. So this is clearly increasing as a more serious national security issue. What are the things that you hear about as you go about work at the Chertoff Group and you work with clients and you're working with governments, you're working with companies and institutions, what is it that they're also seeing on a regular basis? Well, I think the biggest recent story is ransomware, which is, of course, mm-hmm. uh, infecting a network with an encryption that locks down all the data and then saying, if you don't pay me money in bitcoins, I'm going to throw the key away and you'll never get your data back. And that has the potential to be hugely disruptive. There have been hundreds of attacks on healthcare institutions, and those attacks of ransomware make it impossible to actually carry out necessary medical things. Colonial Pipeline was a ransomware attack. A Brazilian meat company company was a, a ransomware attack. So that is the emerging new threat. But we continue to see the old-fashioned theft of money and identity impersonation as well. You and I, in our prep call for this, we were talking about how companies have been very lean and mean, cutting costs, you know, just in time, just doing things when they need it. And in many ways, Wall Street has certainly uh, applauded that move. And we've seen that play out in uh, the financial markets. But I do wonder, 
are a lot of companies, institutions, governments really prepared for maybe the cyber attacks to come? Well, Carol, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> you know, for many years, the mantra in the business community was lean and mean, just in time, don't have any excess capacity. That keep, keeps costs down and it makes us hyper-efficient. The flip side of hyper-efficiency is you are vulnerable if something happens and now you don't have a plan B. You either don't have an alternative way to carry out your mission or you don't have an alternative way to store your data. So I do think it's causing businesses and governments to rethink whether they need to build in a margin of safety and a margin of security against the possibility of some kind of a disaster. And by the way, let me say the pandemic has been a lesson in the same principle, that you've got to have a backup plan because sometimes either mother nature or criminals wind up interfering with your plan A. Well, let's talk about who's actually doing the cyber attacks at this point. We know we saw the summit between Presidents Biden and Putin and, um, you know, Biden pretty much laying out that he understands that there are things going on in Russia that possibly likely that the president, uh, President Putin, is aware of. Um, I mean, that's part of the problem. Governments know there's stuff going on in their countries and they're kind of allowing it. Well, some governments are allowing it. Now, with the Russians, yeah, we've right. seen two types of bad actors. We've seen the SVR, the Russian intelligence service, which was behind the solar winds hack into the supply chain. But we've also seen criminal groups, organized criminal groups based in Russia, carrying out attacks in other countries. And essentially, the tacit or even explicit understanding in Russia is, if you're a criminal group, as long as you carry out your crimes outside of Russia's borders, Russia, the Russian authorities will leave you alone. And they do that because sometimes they go to these very criminal groups and enlist them to carry out attacks with a national security element. We saw that, for example, in 2007 in Estonia, where criminal groups acting at the behest of Russia attacked the Estonian government and the Estonian financial system. So I think President Biden was quite right to be clear to, to Putin that we know it's not just the intelligence agencies themselves, but it's the fellow travelers uh, in Russia that are carrying out a lot of these most devastating attacks. And, and do you think governments need to be ready to launch attack and a cyber attack back, basically go on offensive if they are attacked? Well, that raises the critical issue of deterrence. And up to now, we've mm. typically done things like brought criminal cases or imposed sanctions which have a certain amount of, of deterrent impact, but not really as much as we need given what's going on now. And therefore, I think we need to get to the point that there is a, a, a cyber response when there is an attack. And that may mean disabling the attacker's um, servers or otherwise interfering with the attacker's uh, conduct of operations. And maybe most important, Follow the money. If you can get the money back, mm -hmm. that is a major blow to the criminal groups. And one of the great stories out of Colonial Pipeline is the FBI was able to track the cryptocurrencies that were used to pay the ransom and get most of that money back. And if we can do that, that's going to be a major dent into the incentives these groups have. Hey, Michael, one last question just got under a minute here. Have we seen the worst of it when it comes to cyber attacks? Or are you kind of getting ready for the big one? I'm afraid we haven't seen the worst. And I think particularly as tensions heat up geopolitically, we may actually see attacks that are direct on critical infrastructure 
We've seen Russian reconnaissance on our electric grid. They haven't done anything. But of course, you have to ask, why are they looking? And that's why we need to have the capability to make it clear that a response that causes a loss of life or very serious economic damage will, in our view, be the initiation of a hybrid conflict, and we will respond forcefully and unequivocally. And that was Michael Chertoff, former Secretary of Homeland Security, speaking from the Qatar Economic Forum. You can sign up to see more from that event uh, at BloombergLive.com, including the full conversation. And we're going to have more on cybersecurity a little bit later on. We're going to talk with the founder of Evolution Equity Partners, Richard Seewald. It's a venture firm, Tim, investing in cybersecurity companies. But we know this is an important area of our world in general, but also of our investment world. And also a very chilling way to end the interview that, like, you know, there's concern that we're going to see something worse than we've seen already, attacks on critical infrastructure. I mean, if oil and, and food supply aren't critical infrastructure, I don't know what else is, right? Right. What's Power, next? Banking? Financial? Like, think about that. Yeah. Uh, that would certainly be uh, crippling. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. It's been a relatively calm one uh, and a tight trading range. We'll talk about that in just a moment. We are seeing equities, though, take a leg down here uh, as we get closer to the closing bell. Let's get to it, though, uh, with Eleanor Reed. She's partner and head of corporate strategy at Gideon Strategic Partners, and she joins us on the phone from Raleigh, North Carolina. Gideon, by the way, uh, is a financial advisor, and uh, it's great to have her here because one of the things she's really watching closely is crypto, which is something we are obsessed with. Eleanor, so nice to have you. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much, Carol, for having me. Yeah, well, it's great to have you here. First of all, in terms of, let's go right to it, because crypto is something that's on your radar. First of all, your clients, you guys are advisors. How often are you having conversations with your clients when it comes to crypto? You know, it's almost every day when we <laughs> speak to um, some of our prospective clients, um, they're asking us about crypto. And uh, as advisors who have to be responsible, uh, we are doing our due diligence on several crypto funds at the moment. And those that uh, make sense and would fit the profile of our client base, we'll probably bring on board. So right now, are, are you actually recommending to clients getting into any sort of crypto fund? I am not personally, um, and I will uh, tell you uh, why. Uh, right now, there's just so much volatility in the crypto space, and it's primarily because people see the opportunity for short-term gains and outsized gains in particular. Um, that's going to change rather drastically, I believe, as regulation begins to pick up pace. Well, it's interesting. I feel like it's a double-edged sword in some ways because regulation gives it, maybe it's not a double-edged sword, but regulation gives it some legitimacy, but it also reins it in, right? Correct. Uh, correct. So I've been in the industry even prior to coming to Gideon. I headed up the operations for um, a blockchain company several years ago. And, uh, you know, this was when the SEC and, and the banks were really just trying to get their feet wet uh, in the industry and beginning to really understand what was going on. 
in the space. And so, uh, you know, they pretty much have taken a let's be more than cautious approach, which is why you've seen a lot of firms shut down or um, paying a lot of fines early on, even without having firm definitions of what crypto is and, and how to delineate the definition of different types of cryptocurrencies. Well, Eleanor, help me understand the conversations that your clients are having with you right now when they are asking about crypto. Is it is it one of, okay, should I add this to my portfolio as sort of a, a, a ballast? And it's funny to use the term ballast mm-hmm. because it's been so, uh, look, it's been so volatile, uh, but a, a replacement for gold as people have talked about in, in, in recent years? Or is it one of FOMO where they're like, wait a second, I see so many people uh, whose who's, uh, stake in Bitcoin has increased so much in such a short time, you know, the last six weeks notwithstanding. Um, why aren't we doing this? Exactly. I think what we're seeing mostly is the latter. Uh, huh. A lot of folks that are saying, you know, we've either, you know, got our feet wet in it several years ago, we bought a little, and that's really taken off, and they're proud of how well they've done over the last few years, and therefore, you know, are you doing it there to help us continue um, our investments in the crypto space? And others are just coming on board and really getting um, jazzed up, so to speak, about the opportunity there, at least the short-term opportunity that they see. Some don't fully understand it, um, and so we, we try to go out of our way to help them better understand the difference between blockchain and its applications and how cryptocurrency is meant to facilitate blockchain, blockchain uses. Uh, but we're not there yet as a market overall. People are just kind of riding a wave until, as I said, uh, regulation comes to regu- to uh, rein some of this in. Well, there's also tons of crypto coins out there. I'm trying to think, was it our own Mike McClone who covers uh, commodities but also watches the cryptocurrency space very closely for us, Eleanor? I think he said there was something like 10,000 different types of crypto coins out there. There are a lot. And safe yeah. to say that there are probably some investors thinking, okay, is there something out there that is going to provide the returns that Bitcoin despite the volatility, has returned some investors who got in pretty early. Is there something out there? How do you see the vast space of altcoins that are out there, maybe above and beyond Bitcoin? Yeah, so the way I look at it is uh, the way I look at any other type of investment, equity, fixed income, private alternatives. And you have to go back to fundamentals. And, and that is probably the safest way to approach this. For those that are considering more of a long-term hold, and the term we used to use is HODL, right? Hold on for dear life. Uh, So uh, for for those that are looking for a more long-term hold, you really need to look at the fundamentals of the company itself. What are they seeking to do? Uh, Who who is the management team? How experienced are they? How well are they funded? Uh, And then, um, you know, what's the use case for uh, the cryptocurrency that they're offering to the market? Does the recent volatility that we've seen down 50% uh, as of yesterday, it's back up today, uh, at one point yesterday from its recent high, does that does that change the conversation, though? Does that make investors and, and, and potential clients of yours and clients of yours say, okay, wait a second, uh, it's, a, it's a little too hot to handle? Uh, you would think it would. I think people are still asking the question, especially as we've seen over the, the uh, last few days, uh, with the announcement coming out of China that they're broadening their um, mining shutdowns. Uh, but I think the the mining piece, on the one hand, you would look at it as a competitive advantage, and so it might be a good thing. But I think what people are reading into that is that this is one of the few steps towards further regulation and clampdown that we're seeing in several countries, and therefore 
um, they want to start taking their gains before it drops too far off the map. Do you feel like when it comes to crypto or altcoins and uh, understanding this whole space that the best is yet to come uh, and that maybe the companies that have lasting stay in this space or maybe the currencies or commodities, however you want to describe to crypto, uh, have yet to come that we haven't seen them yet? Yeah, I would totally agree with that. You know, I compare the um, blockchain market with the internet. If you remember when the internet came on board, it was like everybody and their mom had had some kind of internet stake. People were spamming each other, trying to sell anything and everything over the internet, and all sorts of companies sprung up um, that could uh, provide some level of benefit. And the stars of the internet back in the day, early on, Netscape, AOL, uh, look at where they are today uh, and in comparison. So I believe uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum are great um, use tokens. It's, I think it's a good idea to hold on to some, but I, I would imagine that much like the transition away from some of those early names in the internet to Google and how ubiquitous that is at this point, we're going to see um, some other coins coming up that may replace or at least minimize the effects of the um, earlier coins. Just in the 10, 10 seconds we have left with you, what is the next, what is, what is the Google when it comes to blockchain though? <laughs> Uh, that's the that's the big question. We don't quite know yet, but I would I would imagine that someone is working on it right as we speak. Well, that's a good way to look at it. A new perspective. Eleanor, thank you. Really appreciate it. Eleanor Reed, she's partner and head of corporate strategy at the financial advisory firm Gideon Strategic Partners on the phone from Raleigh, North Carolina. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.